Join us for the Criterion Institute podcast as Joy Anderson, a global thought leader in business and social change, leads us through a series of discussions, interviews, frameworks, rants, and reframes that will help you better understand how to use finance as a tool for transformative systems change. I am Joy Anderson, and this is the Criterion Institute podcast. Criterion is a systems change organization. We've been working with governments, investors, and civil society for over two decades to create systems change that reduces systemic inequities by using or changing how finance and investments work. We've figured out a lot about how to do systems change, a bunch of other podcasts about that. But undergirding that is the assumption that systems can change, even finance. Markets and monetary flows are also often naturalized, described as if they happen without any human intervention. But the reality is that these are systems that us people are operating, manipulating, all of those things. A gentle but important reminder that humans like us made this system up so we can change it. We just need to believe it's possible and be willing to use our own power in the process. On this episode, I look back to share what teaching high school in Brooklyn, New York, taught me about systems change and the lessons that I learned there continue to inform my why at Criterion. Then I unpack, in order to be able to reimagine systems of finance, you need to break it into its component parts and a few places that you might start. This practice of breaking down things into component parts is so freeing when you understand that the system is made up of components. It's messy, but less immutable. Finally, I share some reflections on a recent workshop that was very, very fun that we did with World University Service Canada, or was in Kenya, and some useful reflections on who sees themselves as able or unable to change systems. Enjoy. When I'm on other people's podcasts or being interviewed for something, people often ask me, why do you do what you do? What motivates you? And I have a lot of different answers. Some are based on my mood. Some are based on the people who are asking me. But one answer is the most common, which is that when I taught high school, I would look out into the classroom and I could tell the difference between the kids who thought they had to survive the system and those who had a glimmer of hope that they could actually change it. Now, don't get me wrong. I had a level of awe of the kids who navigated that system, gamed it, pushed it, worked within it, survived. I learned a lot from them about how to survive. I actually remember going into uh, maybe a week before my first day of teaching. I would have been 21 at the time. And my boyfriend's father said to me that I was going to be eaten alive. Now, I'm pretty sure that was largely grounded in racism, but he wasn't wrong that I was unprepared. I'd grown up in a 
not necessarily an easy place to grow up, but with a significant amount of privilege. And I wasn't, didn't have the skills that they had to navigate. But what they didn't have most days and what I wanted to give them was the hope that they didn't have to survive, but that they could change the system. We spend so much time convincing people that they should be okay with the system that it works and just learn how to go along and get along and fit in and make it work for yourself as best you can. But those glorious moments when you can step back and say, I could make this work differently. We could imagine a different way that this works. That, for me, is what makes it all worth it. And not just that I feel that way, but that somebody else might have a glimmer of hope that they could change how it works. Not just survive, but change the system. One of the key practices in using finance as a tool for social change, really figuring out where and how can finance be useful in creating social change, is to break things into component parts. Why? So finance is actually made up often of compounds, compounded things that got stuck together and are therefore named as a new thing. For example, convertible debt. Convertible debt is, you know, essentially a way that you can put an investment in a company that could eventually look like equity, but since you can't put a value on the company, therefore putting equity, therefore you call it debt. Doesn't really matter. It's a convertible debt. But if somebody said to you, this is how convertible debt works, I can guarantee that they are telling you how convertible debt works for them, how they do convertible debt, not how everybody does convertible debt. So the first thing is to really make sure that anytime you're looking at financial instruments, they're breaking them apart. We're taking them into their component pieces. What are the terms? How is the relationship structured? How are the assets valued? What are the processes by which that's getting moved forward? What's the process of due diligence? All of these different things come together to make the how something works. A lot of different component parts. And understanding them as component parts allows you to put them together in different ways. So one of the ways that Criterion has played this out is in our training program, this sort of iconic training program that we have called Toolkit. Toolkit is a box of cards. It's, a, I believe, 264 cards and little packets, these little cards with definitions on them that name different terms, different vehicles, different types of intermediaries, different processes, different risks, because what we're trying to do is break it into the component parts. Because in seeing things in their component parts, you can imagine putting them together in different ways. If there's a cool warrant or a put or a call or any of these options that we use in finance, maybe those could actually be useful in a debt instrument or an equity instrument 
or in something completely different, right? How do we take the core elements and figure out to use all these toys in finance? So thinking of them as elements versus as compounds becomes important. Two other places where component parts matter. The second is case studies. So case studies are very attractive because they say how something happened in a particular context, it shows how it rolled out, and then what the lessons learned are. One of the challenges with case studies, though, is one, the thing has to have happened. Number two, you have to have studied it while it happened. And number three, you're assuming that showing a case study will teach somebody else how it's relevant to their world. What I experience often is that when people see case studies, they can look at them and say, this is how it's not me. I don't see myself in this case study. And so when we teach, we want to show people the component parts and give them the power to put it together however they want. And sure, we still tell stories about how things have come together, but they're about points of hope, not how it works. Because if we say the case study is how it works, we're reinforcing that it already works in a certain way versus giving people the power to say, how could this work? What are these toys? How could I put them together in different ways to be able to create what I want to create here? How could I disrupt the power dynamics within it? The final example around component parts is thinking about components or elements versus maps. Let me break this apart a little bit. I cannot tell you how many times people have asked me, can you create a map for me? Can you map the field of gender lens investing? Can you map all of the government actors who are doing X, Y, or Z? Draw me a map. Here's the thing about maps. In drawing a map, usually what you're drawing, picture a map that you've seen, right? Whether it's roads on a map, topography where there's mountains that are connected, or even a drawing of how something works in a diagram, those PowerPoint presentations that show maps of how things connect to each other. Maps show how things connect, but they assume that that's the only way they can be connected. So if you're looking at a map, it shows the picture of how things connect at this moment. It doesn't suggest to most people you know what I could do? I could take all those elements and rearrange them and put them in a different way. Now, you and I might know that, but I'm telling you, most people look at maps as if they are gospel truth. And that has finally been explained to me how it works. So the key thing we're doing here in breaking things into component parts, whether it's deconstructing a financial instrument, deconstructing a case study, deconstructing a map, is we're saying it's not how things are fixed and put together. It's how they can be taken apart, dismantled, examined, look at all the power dynamics, figure out what makes them work or what makes them exploitative or what makes them not work, and then figure out how can we take those same toys and put them together in a different way. So we break things into their component parts and so we can put them back together for new possibilities that could disrupt power dynamics, that could achieve greater outcomes that says, here is a different way that these same things can come together to create new possibilities. 
I was invited to do a workshop in Kenya at Diani Beach with the senior leadership team of WUSC, the World University Service Canada. They had brought together their senior leadership team and asked me to do a training on systems change. And I was traveling in the continent anyway, so it seemed like a good idea for me to pop in and do this couple-hour workshop. We love WISC, work with them all the time. And they had been doing a training on systems change the week before. I don't know if I really knew this before I showed up and had actually come up with my own script for what I was going to think about. Um, And they're building out practices for what it would take to really be an organization focused on systems change. And so what Jim Delaney had thought was Criterion's an organization that does systems change work. We are a systems change organization. So could we share something about how we do systems change? And so we started with a conversation just to reground in exactly how systems work, right? And one of my favorite examples is to think about a parking lot. Because in some ways, the the rules that define the width of the parking space are embedded in a whole bunch of other systems. It's the axle width of a car, which then defines the width of roads and the size of containers on big ships because the size of the container is what fits on a truck because of the axle size, which I digress here for a little bit, but actually goes back to Roman times when it was the width of the chariot wheels that would actually make ruts in roads. And if you had the same size axles across the empire, you could actually increase mobility around the empire. So small little historical fact there, but it's one of those examples where the size of a parking lot the size of a parking space, the size of our cars are a system that is deeply embedded, extraordinarily durable because of all the parking spaces and the size of the roads and and not something you can just change despite the fact that all of us would really like to be driving smaller cars. What if we actually change the size of parking spaces? If we could do that, it would force us to buy smaller cars. It's an interesting story about systems change, durability of systems. And there is, of course, the classic paved paradise and put up a parking lot song, which always runs through my head. It makes me want to sing that. So anyway, we're having this whole conversation (laughs) about this parking lot and systems change. But then it got really real because... WUSC is an organization that works in some rough places where development's happening, works with refugees extensively, is working with youth, working with sort of a significant gender lens in its work in terms of thinking about how to work with women farmers. And so as we started this conversation about the power dynamics, not just in how the roads work, but in how to create systems change. Because we often talk about the power to change the system, but then even in the power to change the system, there are power dynamics. Who sees themselves as able to change systems is probably the question that, that drives my own life's work. And thinking about those power dynamics in who can change the system, who sits at the table. And so as we are having this conversation about power, 
somebody in the back of the room said, go look at that flip chart, Joy. And so the funny moment was I looked over and there was literally a sign that said parking lot. And underneath it, it said, how do we address those losing power? Because in the end, (laughs) changing systems is about changing power. And so we can no longer afford, as the room that I was with made very clear, we can no longer afford to have conversations about power in the parking lot. To learn more about our work, visit us at criterioninstitute.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Your reviews help our podcast reach a wider audience. Thanks for listening.